So we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 18. We had looked last week briefly, kind of as an overview, um, for the first parts of Matthew chapter 18 while we were at the nursing home. But I wanted to make sure that we uh, gave that section enough due diligence uh, to get out of it, hopefully, everything that we can, we can and could. If you remember last time we were talking from the end of chapter 17, we talked about the kind of story that Jesus shows us where on their way to Capernaum, the tax collectors come and want the fee for the temple tax, and we kind of discussed that, what that meant. The main at least one of the main points out of that story that I don't know if we got across as clearly as we should is that Jesus, who of all people was most certainly exempt from such a tax, okay, was humble enough to submit to paying the tax for the purpose, as he said, so that we should not offend these people who have come to collect it. That's kind of one of the main points of that entire story. Now, you get kind of distracted a little bit because then you go fish it from a fish's mouth. Um, is where you get it. And start, people start getting into all these things about that and why it happened and all this. But the main point that Jesus was teaching us was that, that even Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the, the owner and the orchestrator of the temple itself, he of all people was exempt from that. As he pointed out, the children of the king are exempt. You don't take tariffs and taxes from the children. You take them from the foreigners, from the strangers who are in the land. So Jesus was making the point that he felt himself to be free. He, you know, by kind of saying the children of the king, you could even employ Peter and the other disciples in that. I mean, you could kind of reach out, but in particular, just focusing on Jesus Christ himself, he felt, and I think is accurate that he was exempt from such things. But he made a point, I will pay this, and I'm paying it because I don't want to offend. I don't want to offend. And then he goes in and he starts talking about this other situation that's going on. At the same time, as they are dealing with all of this, the disciples are arguing, as we learn in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, Jesus, you're bringing in this new kingdom. We've got this new thing coming in. We're excited about it. You know, we've seen kind of a foretaste of it. Man, looks like a cool thing to be a part of. Now, let's get down to the stuff that really matters. Who's going to be the greatest, the chiefest? Who's going to have the high offices? If you're bringing in this new kingdom, who's going to sit in the chiefest places? And Jesus called a little child to him and said, and sat him in the midst of them and said, Verily, verily, or verily, I say to you that except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive such little child in my name receiveth me. So, there's kind of five different themes within this text, okay? And that's the entire chapter, actually, of chapter 18. Five different themes we're going to kind of look at over the next several weeks. The first being hierarchy, okay? The second being temptation. The third being protection. The fourth, restoration. And then the fifth, forgiveness. So you have hierarchy, temptation, protection, restoration, and forgiveness. That's kind of, of chapter 18, that's going to be kind of five themes that we're going to look at as we go through this. In the beginning, okay, in the first section here, as he is teaching, we come across the hierarchy one, okay? Looking at the hierarchy, when these men started arguing about this, they were asking about a hierarchy. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who gets the top spot? Who deserves to sit on your right and your left, as 
one of the apostles, actually two of the apostles' mother asked the question, you know, where, how can we get my sons on either side of you, Jesus? What, what do I got to do? Hierarchy. Who gets to come first? Who gets to be number one? So when we look at this in this section of Scripture with hierarchy, we notice, and as I guess we all have kind of come to the conclusion through the years as we have studied and looked at the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, you notice that there's not really a hierarchy, or if there is one, it's the reverse of what people think. Okay, The hierarchy, the kingdom economics, everything described with the kingdom is always just a little bit different than how the world's working, right? Okay. In fact, you'd say it's a lot of bit different. It's the 180 degree reverse direction that the world nature and human nature would kind of tell us. In our own concept of hierarchy, it's always the people who are the smartest, the fastest, the most creative, the most maybe diligent, the ones who have the most mental fortitude, the ones that, that work the hardest, fight the longest, put out. I mean, those are the ones who usually rise to the top, okay? Those are the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. Those are the ones that are the captains of their own destiny, captains of their industry, the ones who have done it all, have worked hard, have built up from the ground, you know, those kind of things. Those are the ones that we see and we go, okay, that's why they're at the top, man, because they did this, or they have this, or they were given this, or they have achieved this. And we say, man, look at that. I mean, you think of Apple CEO, and you think of Steve Jobs and and Wozniak, I think, you think of where they came from, and it's like this, you know, rags to riches story. Man, we were just a couple of guys building little computers in our garage, and now you are, at least was, I think, the highest selling, highest highest evaluated company in the world. You're like worth over a trillion dollars, you know, I mean, it's this ridiculous amount of money. You say, man, look at that, look where they got to. And we put those people up on pedestals and say, well, these are the ones. You look at people who rise in political office and they get to the highest office of the lands or whatever it may be. Those are the ones in hierarchical status. Those are the ones that we look at, the ones who have achieved the most. And here, just like with any kingdom, you're going to have people that are going to start thinking along those lines. What? Who? Where? What? Who's... Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to get that chief spot? I heard you kind of like John a lot. Are you going to put him ahead of me? Do you not remember I was here before him? Do you remember what Levi did? I mean, he was a tax collector. He came in late to the game. Really, should what part should he have in this? And I don't think it comes coincidentally on the heels of the previous story we just read about. Remember, from chapter 17 going into 18, we're at the same spot, same time. They were on their way to Capernaum when the tax collectors came. They were on their way to Capernaum when they're arguing about who would be the greatest. And in the same scene, Jesus is teaching a profound lesson about what the true nature of a follower of Jesus Christ should be. Okay? And in this case, it's with the disciples, and he's talking about hierarchy. They are just revealing and exhibiting the natural human nature that all of us have. They didn't ask some kind of crazy question. You look at them and go, man, that's so out of place. No, it's not. That would be anybody in any situation. Any of us in a similar situation when we're near a power figure. They're going to want to do that. Where am I going to be? Where am I? What 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 seat am I going to have? Where am I going to? Where's the fame and the honor and the glory that I'm going to get from all this? So they're arguing with him about it. And what's funny enough, and kind of what we mentioned last week, this isn't the only time they ask this question. You know, now a lot of times you would think that you would get the point when Jesus makes one, right? Especially when it's Jesus making the point. I get it. If somebody else, some other preacher, not very charismatic, not a good way with words, they make a point, it might fly right over your head. You don't pick it up. Jesus never was that kind of preacher, okay? 
And especially when he's sitting there talking one-on-one with his disciples, I mean, we kind of marveled at the fact that he has to repeat himself three times that, hey, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and be resurrected. You go, that should have been a one-and-done thing. Like, you could have gotten that. There was no ambiguity. It was not laced into some kind of weird parable about a fish and a coin. It was just, this is what's going to happen. And still three times he's like, hey, just, just a little friendly reminder. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and be resurrected. You would think, though, when he taught them about hierarchy, they would get the idea. Guys, let me tell you about what the hierarchy of the kingdom of heaven looks like. But even in Luke chapter 22, at the, at the Passover meal, at the Last Supper here, you know, with the scene where they're all laying and, and you know, sitting by Jesus at the table, you know, that scene, at where they're at, they're at the Last Supper, they're at this monumental moment in history. And even there, they're asking the question, who's... Who's going to be greatest? Jesus is like, I've already answered this question. I don't have time. I'm about to go get taken by. I mean, this is not, not the time I want to discuss this, guys. But they're still asking it again. When you fast forward to Acts chapter 1, and when they are talking about Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven in clouds of glory and light and angels singing and all this stuff. And their last question to him is, yeah, but Jesus, what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? Where is it? You know, the, probably the follow-up question, if he hadn't cut him off, would have been, and who's going to be the greatest in it? Who gets to sit in the chief spot? You're taking off. Who's going to fill the power vacuum, Jesus? Who's sitting on your throne? there got to be a throne for the kingdom, and you're leaving, so who gets that spot? You know, can, we sit, can anybody sit on that thing? Who's going to sit on the kingdom of David? Who's going to sit on the throne of David? Who's going to physically be the chief dog in the kingdom when you take off? Those, these questions just keep coming up over and over again. And it goes back to probably two of the greatest motivators of all mankind, which is power and fame. Power and fame. Two of the greatest motivators of all mankind. People want their little 20 minutes of fame. That's why YouTube has turned into such a phenomenon. Okay? You got people on there who have like these millions of followers. You know what they do? Nothing. They like have videos of hours with themselves playing with cats, and somehow people are captivated by it, and they've got sponsors throwing money at them. I'm like, what in the world did they do? They didn't do anything. It's like keeping up with the Kardashians. Who are the Kardashians? What did they ever do? You know, you can at least look at actors and go, oh, yeah, you're Robert Redford. You played in this mall. Yeah, you're Clint Eastwood. You did this. You got some actors or actresses. You go, yeah. Well, you got people like the Kardashians. You're going, what, the, what, what are you and why are you a TV show? And who cares? Power and fame. There was a really interesting study they did, and I just thought this was so, I'm like, this is why we are so pathetic as a people in existence. There was a guy who was testing out this idea of power and fame, okay? And so what he did was he had some buddies play along with him. He dressed up in kind of incognito dress. And went out and had some buddies come out and like crowd around him and act like they were trying to snap his picture. So it looked like people were noticing him off of something. They'd be going, oh, that's that guy. That's, you know, that's, that's Tom Jones. And they'd be running up and snapping pictures and all this stuff with him. And people then around him who were innocent bystanders started doing the same thing. And it got so much that he became a cult phenomenon. This guy had done nothing. He had some buddies pose as paparazzi. And just because they were snapping pictures of him with their cell phones and posting it on Instagram, and then he ended up having millions of followers and stuff, now all of a sudden he was a person. He was a famous person. He had done nothing. He posed in a store. That's how infectious this fame and power thing can get. And what he said was, is that afterwards... He actually felt kind of like let down by the whole thing because now all his fame and power is gone. 
It's like, buddy, you didn't have anything to begin with. You were a nobody. You didn't do anything. You put on a pair of jogging pants and went down to Walgreens, and somehow you're a cult phenomenon. Power and fame. And in, in our Instagram, Facebook world today, it's like it is an instantaneous thing. Which should just scream at us how fickle and worthless it is. There's a lot of people who need to stay off Twitter. <laughs> a lot of people who need to leave it alone. And the disciples were no different than you and me. It's the same thing. They have this opportunity. They have this thing that's coming along. We're getting this movement going. We're coming to a place where power is going to be up for grabs. We're going to have some fame up for grabs. We've already kind of seen a hint at this when they came back to Jesus after Jesus gave them the powers to cast out demons and stuff. And we talked about this with the boy who couldn't be healed. You know, this kind of idea of, okay, the stuff you've given us, the power you've given us, the abilities you've given us, now that we've been using them kind of a little bit on your leash, a little farther away from you, on our own, people are going to start looking at going, oh, look at Peter, and look what he did. He healed that little boy, or look at John, and look how he raised this person from the dead, or look at Mark, and man, or look at Luke, or look at, you start getting these kind of, hey, look at us. We're, I mean, hey, we're the apostles. There's only 12 of us. There's hundreds of, there's only 12 apostles. And look what we can do. Lord, look, even the demons are subject to us. I mean, come on. We're the apostles. I'm just saying. Fame and power. Of course, Jesus like smacks them in the face and he's like, yeah, you know how fickle power is? You know how fickle power is? I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's how fickle his power was. He aggrandized himself. He looked at how, quote-unquote, powerful he was. He looked at the glorious position he held and got a little bit of vanity working with him. And guess what? Just as quickly as lightning falls from the sky, I saw Satan falling from heaven. That's not a slow fall. That's not a squirrel suit dive. That is a, you're on the ground. That's how instantaneous his vanity dropped him from the most exalted cherub to here. And he tells them, don't, you know, don't rejoice that these demons are made subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Fame and power Ain't all it's cracked up to be. The thing that matters the most, the thing that has the most eternal weight on it, is that your names are written in heaven. And the same thing goes here when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's making a dramatic point to them. Guys, you're arguing and squabbling and debating and seeking after what you're viewing as a temporary worldly kingdom. And you're wanting a piece of that pie. And of all the of all the the people to grab how fickle and worthless that kingdom related power is, the Jews should grab it very acutely. Solomon spent a whole lot of time writing about how fickle and vain and worthless this is. Because one minute you're at the height and the next minute you're in the valley. The next minute you give the kingdom over to your sons and your sons are morons and they destroy it. Everything you fought for, built up all the power and fame and acumen that you have achieved is gone in an instant. Of all the people, these Jews who are looking for this kingdom and Jesus is going, guys, I've got a kingdom, but it's not what you think and it's Better because it's not what you think. It's not this temporal thing. Forget about the throne of David sitting in Jerusalem. I'm talking about a throne of David, so to speak, that sits in heaven forever. That is a part of a kingdom that never ends. That the gates of hell cannot prevail against. I mean, that's the kingdom I'm talking about. And you're still squabbling about who's going to sit 
as the chief advisor in a natural kingdom, which all it takes is a plague or a Babylonian army and you're done. So we have to kind of ask ourselves too, because the apostles are subject to this. The disciples have obviously been subject to this. They're not extraordinary in any way as far as being out of place with how we would naturally react in these same situations. So then the reverse is true. How do we view our place in the kingdom of heaven? How do we view our relationship with Christ? Are we too just interested in Jesus only because of power or fame or position that he can afford us? And you say, oh, well, I mean, come on. What power, what fame, what can you really gain from that? I, there's plenty of people you could run through and parade through who have used the church, used Christ, used for pain, fame and power and glory. I mean, good gracious, we had like centuries okay, of existence. Or the quote-unquote church, the quote-unquote kingdom, was the catalyst for all sorts of power grabs and genocides. and I mean, there's a lot to that. There's, we'd be kidding ourselves if there wasn't something to the fact that if you went to the right church in your local city or community, that it affords certain business opportunities that wouldn't be there otherwise. I mean, I've heard plenty of people in the past who said, yeah, we swapped to this church. I'm not saying here, but I was such and such. I was a whatever. I was an insurance salesman. And guess what? All of the people who had the most went to this church. So if I'm going to network and have a name in this town, well, it's, it better suits me to go to this church, to go to that church, to be able to network with these people. I'm not calling anything about their Christianity into question. I'm just saying we're deceiving ourselves if we think that that doesn't go on. So even with our relationship with our Savior, you know, what are we interested in? Are we interested in a relationship with our Savior? Or are we just interested in being able to say, well, I'm a Christian, like everybody else in the South, right? Because you're born in the South. Automatically makes you a Christian. Or I'm a devout Christian. I've been a Christian since I was like 8, 9, 10 years old. Always been in the church. Always been in the right church. Read the cover. I mean the Bible cover to cover many times. Nailed down the best arguments about whatever. Are we in it for the relationship? Or are we just in it because... It affords us certain things that we want. If we, as a church, or if we as a people, okay, if we as individual Christians, or as we were calling ourselves followers of Christ, this is, again, getting back to what we've been talking about the whole time. There is a difference. There's a huge difference in Christian as we know it in 21st century America and followers of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people who check Christian on a lot of boxes who don't follow Christ. There's a lot of people, and again, as we've said before, all you have to do is turn on the TV and the people who profess to be Christians saying things that are so anti-Christ. I mean, we like to sometimes go to the big examples of charlatans and people, you know, talking about wanting to buy Learjets in Christ's name and why and all that stuff. And we want to talk about televangelists and all these things. I'm talking about real, living, next-door neighbor Walking out of church making statements that don't line up with the things that Christ taught. 
people who would say, well, I know he said love your neighbor, but I think that means our legal neighbor, not our illegal neighbor. Well, I'm going to hate to break it to you, but I didn't read that in Matthew chapter 5. I didn't see he put that prescription on there. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. That's what I'm going to follow. Yeah, except Jesus doesn't say that. He actually says the opposite. Well, it's only window shopping. I'm allowed to do that, right? No, because Jesus says if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Well, but I go to church. Well, you can go to church and you can be a Christian, but you may not be following Christ. Part of that religious group. But you're not following Christ. That's why, as Christ taught us in the previous in chapter 17 about the humility of being even though you're right in that way being able to humbly submit for the sake of not offending others is a huge if not the hugest okay part of being a follower of christ that's all throughout the new testament as we were talking about this morning about preferring one another above one i mean that's the kind of things that you're talking about being able to not, and that word offend is not, it's not the idea of I'm making you mad at me, okay? The offending word there, and I can't, I, I had written this down, but I can't remember what it is now. Um, oh, scandalizo. So it's it's the Greek word scandalizo, which is basically to create scandal or in a more general way of causing someone to stumble over something, okay, is basically what it's getting at. I'm causing, I'm offending you, not in you hurt my feelings, but that I have actually thrown a stumbling block in front of you to cause you to stumble in your walk, whatever that may be. In the case of the tax collectors, he was not going to offend them. And you say, wow, they're just tax collectors for a tax that doesn't make, and that's been, you know, changed and been taken away from its original intent and all this stuff. And Jesus was still saying, yeah, and, and I don't necessarily have to pay it. But you know what? So we won't cause them to stumble. We're going to pay this, Peter. He's going to go forward with that. You're looking at hierarchy. I'm talking about you humbling yourself down so that you don't offend. I'm talking about you humbling yourself down to the level of a child. Humbling yourself to the hierarchical place of a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. If we constantly, and again, this, this gets back a lot to the way we view things. We view things a lot of times, well, I mean, if you're right, you are right. I mean, and you tell people that, and you may be sure people know that, because obviously they're wrong. So if I'm right and you're wrong, you need to be right too, and this is how you're going to do it. You're going to do it my way and the way that I tell you, and that way you'll be right too. And then everybody will be right, and we'll all be happy, and things will go on. But that's not what Jesus did with the tax collectors. The humbleness, the humility aspect of it is essential for our, as Christ puts it, our beginning. If you do not humble yourself as a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not, a, that's not an ambiguous statement. There is no like window dressing on that. There was no trying to figure out how you got the coin in the fish's mouth with that one. It's very cut and dry. We were talking a lot this morning about unity. You know, the, the first step towards disunity starts with pride. The first step to disunity starts with pride. The idea that I know better than you do. I know more than you do. I am more right than you are. And if I start from that position, then it doesn't matter what you're talking about, what you're saying, or what very good points you might be able to make. I'm not going to hear it. I'm not going to listen to it because I'm right. I'm right. I know I'm right. If all we're doing in preaching, teaching, whatever, is about how right we are, then we got to question ourselves. Where are we at on this scale? Where are we at in this kingdom? Are we using that as a way to go, yeah, the greatest in the kingdom, that would be us. You want to know why? Because we're right. 
We got everything right. Everything we do is right. Everything we say is right. Every way we act is right. We are the right ones, and everybody else is wrong. Well, are we any better than the petty arguments that the disciples are having? Who's going to be the chiefest in the kingdom? We'll already know that. It's going to be us because we're the only ones who've got it right. Everybody else has it wrong, so it's got to be us. We've got to be the chief ones. We've got to be the right ones, the correct ones, the only ones. I'm going to break it to us. That's pride. That is pride, pure and simple. Jesus was the most correct of anybody on the face of the earth. He even explained to Peter, hey, you know what? We really, and I'm going to, you know, we're, you know, taxes and tariffs and things to children, you know, we really, this shouldn't apply, but you know what? We're going to do it anyway. Was Jesus right? Yes. He was right on both accords. He was correct in his, in his, his exegesis of that section there of he was correct in his view of the tax. He was correct in everything about that. He was correct when he said the children are free. We don't. And he was also right when he said, but so that we won't offend, we're going to pay. He was right in both cases. So we have to be careful that we aren't just in this whole Jesus thing too, just for what we can say. Well, I got in the, you know, I, I got in the right church with the right people, with the right Bible, with the right everything. And that's, and that's, that's what I'm here. I'm here because I am right. I'm here because I wanted to be the chiefest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus, again, turns that up on its head as far as what is viewed by Jesus as being right, chief, the hierarchy. He takes a kid and sets him in the middle. And again, we kind of talked about this a little bit at the nursing home, but, you know, when you view that, there's a lot of times people will take this and they kind of look at different aspects of it and they're like, oh, childlike innocence and, you know, and all this stuff and... I, I think because the theme is hierarchy, I think that's what he was going off of. No one in the Jewish culture viewed a child at the top of the, of the hierarchy of the social order. None of them looked at the child and said, hey, here's your king, you know, it's this child. This is who you listen to. All like, no, he's ignorant, he's untrained, he's unwise. You know, we go to the elders. That's why you went to rabbis, and that's why you went to the eldest of your family. And those were the people who guided you in decisions because, hey, they're the ones that have been around the longest. I mean, that's generational teaching. That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy where, you know, God through Moses is telling his people, you teach it from one set to the next. You teach it from the father to the son. It's a generational thing, but you look to your elders as your wise, you know, all that stuff. Here, though, he goes, here you go. Here's a child. This is who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That doesn't make sense. I mean, what has this child done? What has he achieved? How can he gain fame and power? What has he done that is contributing to the kingdom? In all honesty, probably nothing. Maybe they're making a mess on the bench. That's about as big as their contribution gets, okay? Not doing anything grand. For, I mean, I've cast out demons. What has this child done? Why would they get to be the chiefest in the kingdom? What have they really done? When you look at even aspects of our culture, in the same way, we don't view children as the, as the epitome, as the top of the hierarchy, as the one that you go to. The CEOs of the companies are not children, per se. Um, the highest politicians are not children, again, per se. There's a lot of things where we don't, we don't even let children vote until they get 18. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that. Even in like monarchical societies where you have a monarch. I mean, if a child is the one who by blood has ascended to the throne, usually if they're a child, you have a regent who's like a mother or father or someone who's like kind of carrying them through until they hit that age when they're apparently old enough and wise enough to rule. They, just our society as a whole does not put children at the top in that way. But Jesus was teaching a profound point here. He was making a point to these people that if you look at the child, that's what you should be willing to humble yourself down to. To humble yourself down to the level of a child, not thinking that you know everything. 
You know, there's a lot of children that think they know everything. I was not one of them, but there are a lot of children that think they know everything. But being able to humble yourself down almost, if you want to take it this way, into a place of submission. Because in the Bible, the child example is a beautiful picture of submission. That's why in Ephesians we have children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Because this is what the Lord said to do. You're to obey your parents. He even uses the law and says that the law was like a schoolmaster teaching a bunch of children until they were grown up. And that's, I mean, all that's kind of that idea is revolved around there of you're in submission, you're in need of learning, you don't know it all, and there are people that are above you that are more, more in control, more in charge, have more to say over you. Jesus uses this example of submission when he's talking about the child. He's also the one who embodied this perception of coming down like a child and being in submission. How many times in the New Testament do we have Christ saying, I'm here to do the will of my father. I'm here to serve the role as son, okay, as a child of someone else. Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing to the Philippian church, you know, he makes the point talking about Jesus and how Jesus came down. And in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he'll talk about how being in the form of God, or not necessarily in the form, but in the, he is equal with God. He is one of the Trinitarian Godhead. He is God Almighty. All in, you know, there's no degrees of Godhood in him. He is God. He is equal with the Father and the Spirit. But even though he is God, and he did not think that coming down here, he couldn't come in the form of God if he wanted to. He could have come down here as God incarnate here, 100%, you know, no, no manhood, no fleshhood about him. He could have just made himself appear here like we saw so many times in the Old Testament. But he didn't do that, as we know. And we know why he didn't. He had to come as a human. He had to be that mediator in that way. He had to make that sacrifice. He had to be made willing to be subjective unto death. I mean, all these things we know. But he says, it would not have been impossible or unthinkable for him to come down here as who he is, God himself, okay? But he says instead, he made himself of no reputation. He didn't come down here for the fame and the power and the glory, in one sense, a natural humanic sense. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus' answer to who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is willing to humble himself to the uttermost. Jesus' answer to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is who would be willing to to humble himself to the uttermost. Who is willing to take on the hierarchical position of a subjective son or daughter, a child? Because that's what he did. That's what he did. He said, I mean, this gets back to it. You want to follow Jesus? You want to say you're a follower of Christ? Well, Christ laid aside his eternal power and glory in Godhead and took on the form of a worthless less than crappy human being and made himself subject unto death. He took on death. He said, I'm making myself subject to death. And he didn't come down here as the greatest human being there ever was. He came down here as a lowly son of a carpenter who up until a certain age would have been subject under his carpenter father and mother. You know, the whole time sitting in his room in timeout going, you know, I am the son of God. No, I'm just kidding. He wasn't in timeout. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's what he did. So when we say we're going to be followers of Christ, and we sit there and go, oh, that means that I can't do this, and I'm not supposed to say cuss words, and I can't watch R-rated movies and all this stuff. No, it means you're to be humble and to take on the form of a servant. That's number one. 
what was the first thing Jesus did? He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. That was the first thing. It's probably why he uses that as a first thing when we're talking about here with entering the kingdom of heaven. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, the only way in is if you humble yourself down like a child. It will not happen if you don't. If you're not able to humble yourself down and you say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if you aren't able to get off your high horse and recognize that you don't have it all figured out, that you can't get yourself into heaven, that you aren't as good as you think you are, and you can't come down and say, you know what? I profess that I am a wicked, wretched person in need of a savior. And I am willing to repent and be baptized in obedience to him and humble myself in that way. If you can't do that, you can't, you're not entering. There's no entering with that. All of these things line back up. That's the first step. You have to be able to humbly profess that that's the truth. If you're still living in some kind of delusion of grandeur that you actually are a pretty awesome person all on your own and you don't need anybody's help, well, guess what? You're not making that step. I mean, I guess unless you're jockeying for that power and that position like we were talking about. Otherwise, you're not, you're not making that step. You have to humble yourself down to realize that you're actually in the big cosmic scheme of things. You are no greater than a little child. In fact, in a lot of ways, we're probably no greater than a whining infant that poops on itself. Okay, That's about as powerful and awesome as we really are. Someone who can't even control their own bowels. That's about how great we are in the big cosmic scheme of things. But we walk around with a swagger like that's not us. We walk around with a mindset that we actually are the captains of our own destiny and we've got this all figured out and we can handle our own business and we don't need anybody else's help. There are some things, though, that about a child is pretty true. I mean, the child is not presumptuous in that way. I don't have children walk up to me, you know, with the idea that somehow they should be the president of the United States or they should be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company because they've got it all figured out and they know what they're doing. I mean... Most of the time, you don't have that. A kid's pretty happy just being who they are. Not jockeying for position in some hierarchy. They're not asking who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, they're not really doing that. They're usually submissive in that way. And that's how we are. And, and the funny thing is, a lot of times, they are where they are, and they're happy where they are. They don't have any of these delusions of grandeur. They're not like going, man, my little five-year-old life stinks and I can't wait till I can be the CEO of Apple. You know, I mean, that's, that's not the case. They're like, hey, let me go jump on the trampoline for five hours or, I mean, they're just, they're happy. <laughs> they're happy where they are. So what does that mean for us? Well, just as, you know, Christ addressed in Luke chapter 22, he was addressing his apostles when they were asking about, again, who's going to be the greatest. He's like, guys, the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles, and we don't, you know, we're not going to flesh that out too much, but the unbelieving Gentiles as a category, unbelievers, natural, secular world, the Gentile leaders are the ones who seek to lord over other people. They're the ones who desire the power to the point where they can be in control and they can hold all the power and they can tell people to do what they want them to do. That's the childish, unbeliever attitude that is held amongst the secular world in that way. He says, but that's not going to be you. The Gentiles desire that, not you, my followers. Your desire should be like me to lay aside all of that to come down and wash some dirty whining <laughs> arguing disciples feet here your 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 idea your mindset your desire should not be who should be the greatest in being able to control the power and to affect the lives of other people by your iron will but rather you should be desiring to be the greatest servant to everyone. To love your neighbor. To love your enemy. To be a servant in that way to all of them. 
that that's the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven, the one who's willing to do that. And the funny thing is, is the, you know, you've heard the phrase, and I was trying to think of this morning because I couldn't get it in my head just right. But you know the phrase that you, you can get someone, ah, I can't think of it. You Basically, you can get someone to do something with honey better than with vinegar. There you go. That honey is a better motivator than vinegar, and I'd agree with that. Unless you're one of those, you know, apple cider vinegar people, and then you may think they're <laughs> curing cancer, and we'll get into all that later. But in general practice, okay, you get someone to appeal to your position with honey better than vinegar. Basically meaning when you're sweet to someone, you usually can persuade them a little bit better than when you're vitriolic and you're, uh, you know, an unpleasant vinegary type person, okay? And the same way with this, you want to talk about being the greatest servant, you want to have the greatest effect on somebody's life? It's not by your iron will. It's actually by your servant's heart. You're able to persuade. You're able to invite. You're able to bring people out of darkness into light with honey better than you are with vinegar, with servitude in that way better than you are with submission in the idea of trying to compel them into whatever you want them to do. And there's some serious implications with this. I mean, we talked about it. He gives it very clear. You must do this. You must humble yourself as a little child. You must get off your high horse. You must do this or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He, it, it is different than as he was explaining it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. You know, with John chapter 3 and Nicodemus, he says, those who aren't born again cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, okay? Making a physic, physical kind of ability thing. You are incapable because you have not been given the equipment to do so. Here he says, it's not that you cannot. It's not that you cannot. It's that you will not okay you have the ability if you are have been born again in that way you have the ability and you are commanded to obey and in your obedience in your repentance in your humbling yourself down that's how he's saying you will enter the kingdom of heaven he says but if you don't you you won't so i mean we can look at that and take with it a very a very heavy weight in the sense of we can't you don't we don't treat this stuff like it's light like oh yeah you know you need a little extra dose of humility it'll be good for you have a little slice of humble pie what a good thing you know you'll have a happier life you'll live a better life you'll be a more productive person funny that jesus doesn't say that he doesn't say if you want your best christian life now you need to be more humble here's seven steps to being more humble so that you can have a happier life or anything he says no if you don't do this you will not enter the kingdom of heaven I mean, those are some pretty harsh words. A pretty dire and stark command that he's giving to his disciples. You better let this go. So it is, again, as I said, one of the number one steps, the number one things we do, and probably one of the most important things that we say as followers of Jesus Christ is that we have humbled ourselves to Christ, humbled ourselves to the sake of, the, of Christ, humbled ourselves to be able to even follow Jesus. We require humility. We have to be able to say that we don't have it all right. We have to be able to say that we don't know it all. We have to be able to say that you as a human being, as a child of God, as a person of God, you probably you you might have you might have an answer I've never even thought of before. We have to be able to get out of our own self righteousness. We have to be able to humble ourselves and say the only person I know that is right is Jesus and no one else. And that's why we're followers of Him and not anybody else. That's why we rely on him and where our thoughts and our perceptions and our understandings through the years may have thought one way. We go back to it and go, yeah, but you know what's funny is Jesus didn't say that. So if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I got to do what he says, not what tradition or years of learning has taught me. I've got to do what Jesus told me to do. Remember, years of learning and tradition and incorrect teaching had gotten the Jews to a point where they said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
And Jesus said, guys, you've heard it said that, but that was never said by me. I never told you to do that. This is what I'm telling you to do. So we do this by laying aside our wants and desires like we talked about this morning, about preferring one another above ourselves. That's most certainly the humblest, some of the most humble things you can do is putting yourself aside going, yeah, you know, I know that I really, really, really want to do this and I want this, but I'm going to lay that down because there's someone else besides me that needs something more than I do. I need my me time, I need my whatever, but you know what? That goes out the window because you are called to be a servant. Which means that the person you're serving, it's their preference, it's their needs, it's their wants that go above your own. To be able to humble ourselves to the idea that our right may not be right and to be able to listen to others and examine ourselves rather than just assume that we are always right. You know, again, that's just a novel idea, isn't it? So these are the things that we need to think about, especially as Christ is giving us this kind of, this kind of warning and this idea. This, this is something that needs to be considered dramatically in our lives. Do we humble ourselves to the level of a child? Have we humbled ourselves to the level of a child? Have we gotten off of our hierarchy bent, okay, are we just in it for the stuff that Jesus can give us? Do we like the warm, fuzzy feeling we get when we think we're doing things right? Or are we submitting ourselves to the service of our Lord and our Maker, Jesus Christ, and submitting ourselves in the service of others? Humbleness, humility. That is, that's the number one thing that identifies us as Christians. Being humble, having humility. You can't love your neighbor if you, you know, are too focused on yourself. You can't love your enemy when, you know, you think you're justified in your position. You can't love your Lord when you feel like you're pretty good on your own and you don't really need him. So it's important for us to consider. May God bless us to do that.